Psalm 29. It is the purest poetry in all of the Bible. Uh, but I will tell you this, it, it challenges our scientific reason and rationalistic mind. Harry Ironside says, if you have no appreciation for pure poetry, you will have no appreciation for Psalm 29. Spurgeon said, he was one who loved poetry. He said, God speaks in Psalm 29 and the scientist says it is but the clapping of electrons. So, to a little taste, a little flavor of this psalm. It is a poem. It is pure and simple Hebrew poetry at its finest and highest. I believe the context, and hopefully we'll see it today, is David having seen a great storm. Having seen a storm rise up out of the Mediterranean, wash over Canaan, and out into the desert. That's what I think he's describing. And he says, that is like the voice of God, the voice of the Lord, the sound of that storm. When I was a child, I grew up on a farm, many of you know that, and I had a, as a don't tell anybody, it was just among friends here, we're the body of Christ, I had an extreme fear of thunder and lightning and storms. I mean, it, it was, to, to pull my man card, it was it was childish. I mean, it was the work of a child. I was scared to death. I would literally hide from storms. Until one summer, I was with my granddad. He's a pastor. He lived on the uh, Tennessee River. And uh, I'd go stay a couple weeks with him every year. And I was there, and a storm started coming. And a clap of thunder hit. And the, you've been in a house that kind of sh trembled, shook, you know. I was probably seven, eight years old. And literally... I, like, a, like a puppy, I ran and just, I dove through the end covers of his bed. Scared him to death. You know, he was time to sleep. All, all I could think was, I got to get close to my granddad. You know, this, this is bad. And, of course, after the startle of it all, you know, he, he says, son, what's wrong with you? I said, granddaddy, it's storming. He said, oh, son, God's just talking. Went right back to sleep. And I spent time with him. He used to use that phrase a lot. He would thunder. He'd say, did you hear God talk? And I never knew what he was talking about. But it, he was talking about Psalm 29. The fear of storms can be wiped away when we understand the sovereign one who rules over the storms. Children, if you're terrified of storms, and, and you don't have to identify yourself, I know. Especially you young guys, you know, you're still trying to look cool and tough and all that. Yeah. Listen, the Lord reigns and rules even over storms. He can be seen and his majesty and his power and his might can be seen even in storms. Storms are amazing and fascinating at this point. Amy, Amy uh, thinks, I, you know, I've lost my mind. Now I'm not fearful of all at storms. Uh, as a matter of fact, when they say tornadoes are coming, I want to get a lawn chair and sit on the front lawn and watch. Right? I don't recommend that approach, but that's, you know, in my mind, like, you know, James Fan goes, get in the closet, smallest room in your house, and no windows. I'm like, dude, you can't see it coming. I got it. If I'm going to get blown away, I want to see it, you know. And so I, I'm not scared of them anymore. But in 
the power of a storm. You just think about it. The location you're at when a storm hits and the power that's on display, the might that's on display. And all over the world, simultaneously, lightning strikes and bolts and claps of thunder are happening everywhere. And our psalm says, it's like the voice of the Lord. He's, he's ascribing to God worship and he describes God as mightiful, mighty and power and worthy of glory and honor. And his way of doing it is through the storm. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Here it is. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf in Syrian or Mount Hermon, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, where Moses spent so many years wandering in the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. There is no prayer here. There is no... Uh, no, no um, instruction here other than worship God. And the whole poem is given to worship of God. So if you don't like the worship of God, you're going to be awful bored this morning. Because that's all there is. There's one command from this sermon. One. One point. If you're looking for outlines and analytical analysis, it's not here. This is a poem. And it has one meaning. Worship God. So often we trivialize the worship of God. We act as if we've done some great act because we come in a place and we sit down and we talk to our friends and we sing some good songs and we pray a few prayers and we preach a sermon and we go home and say, God, we did our part. We worshiped you. But I just got to ask, do you think God... Do you think God's so weak and so menial that his worship can be broken down to a 30-minute or an hour-long segment out of a week? Do you think God is so small that he can be contained in a worship service? No. No, his worship goes on for eternity. And it comes to him from all of his creation. The first two verses are a call to worship. Now, it's not a call to worship like you experienced this morning. And it's not a call to worship to you or to me or to David or to Israel. Notice who's being called to worship. Who's being called into worship? It looks backwards if you think about it. Who's being called into worship? The angels. Those who have been worshiping God from the moment they were created are being called to worship God. Worship Him, O heavenly being. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The glory do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. We find here a call to worship in heaven. 
It's as if David is caught up having seen this great and magnificent storm that he just wells up inside with this desire to worship God. And before he starts, he acknowledges that worship is taking place in the throne room right now. Above the storm and above the earth and above humans and above all of creation, there are angels worshiping God in his holiness. Now I want to start there and work backwards. In his holiness, he is being worshipped. What does the word holy mean? In the Hebrew, it means separate from. God alone sits in his holiness. Angels, we call them holy angels, but they're only holy because they have received holiness from God. They're only holy because they're in his presence, out in the presence, viewing his holiness. They're only holy because they have not sinned or fallen, but they don't produce in themselves the same kind of holiness that God has. God is holy in his very character, in his very being. Nothing can affect the holiness of God. Worship God in the splendor, the uniqueness, the unified holiness that exists in the Holy of Holies. Worship God there, angels. Come worship Him. Well, it's not only that He's holy, it's that He's glorious. We've said this a lot, but I think it bears saying again, Glory is a phrase that talks about the weightiness of a matter. The imprint of it. God is weighty. He is glorious. How do we know that He is weighty and glorious? Because all of His creation is stamped with His image. All of creation is marked by His character. All of His creation exists because He causes it to exist. His glory is above all things. So worship Him in His holiness. Ascribe to Him the glory that's due to His name. There's no lack of glory in God, and therefore it must be ascribed to the highest power. And those who are worshiping Him are those in heaven in verses 1 and 2. The second part of this moves into verses 3 through 9. The meat or the heart of this psalm comes to us. It's a description. It's a description of the Lord. In this passage, there are 11 verses and there are 18 times the Lord's name is present. Jehovah, Yahweh, is present 18 times in 11 verses. 18 times. And the phrase, the voice of the Lord, is used seven times. That's not a mistake. Seven times in verses 3 through 9. Why? Because seven is, is, is the, the number of perfection. What, what is being said is God's voice, God's being is perfect. David is trying to tell us that. So what we see is the height of parallelism. Don't go through the, this section, in other words. David's intention was not for us to go line by line, word for word, and tear it all to pieces. It was simply to sit in awe of the voice of the Lord. To really get this, again, Spurgeon said, to really understand Psalm 29, one needs to read it while sitting under the clap of thunder. One needs to sit in the open field and see the storm roll in and feel the power of its might and then ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. The voice of the Lord is like the clap of the thunder. And it resides over the waters 
I take this to be a, a reference to over the waters of the Mediterranean, where the storms in David's region of the world built and then moved out over the land. It's this hydrological process that the Hebrew writers were very familiar with. Job described it perfectly. You pull water up out of the Mediterranean, you put it in clouds, you move it out over the land, you rain it down gently on us. It is an unbelievable mercy that God allowed rain to fall on a desertous climate and produce them fruit for their good. And Job worshipped God because of the might and power and wisdom and knowledge of bringing about storms to the region that he lived. So here David says, your voice resides over the waters. The clap of the thunder must have brought the idea of, into David's head of the Lord's might and his power. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty and power and it resides over the many waters. Now, we see that the voice of the Lord in this way existed before creation. Before what we know is creation. Because in Genesis chapter 1, it's the voice of the Lord that creates all things. And what is said to be over brooding? God was brooding over what? The waters. The chaotic waters of the pre-creation were brooded over by the Holy Spirit. And the voice of the Lord went forth and divided the waters. The waters of the firmament from the waters beneath the firmament. It was the voice of the Lord that did that, right? The power of the voice of the Lord caused the waters to separate, created our atmosphere, moved chaos into organization, brought about the dry land, put plants and cedar trees out for all to see, created all of the animate objects that we witness each day as we go about our lives, dogs, cats, insects, fish, everything we see, everything we experience created by the power and the majesty of the voice of the Lord. And here he says, the voice of the Lord is over the water. It, res it, it, it resides over the water. It's powerful in majesty, and we can see it. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The cedars of Lebanon were the strongest materials in the natural creation, again, in the region which David came from. They were known, they were world-renowned for their strength. And the voice of the Lord simply breaks them off. You might remember just a couple of years ago when the storms came through in April, and then if you rode out 431 and you saw the path of destruction and the way the trees were just simply snapped in two, David sitting and watching the storm form over the Mediterranean and move out over the ground and just ripping the cedar trees left and right. He said, this is the voice of the Lord. It breaks down the cedar trees. And it makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Mount Hermon like a wild ox. Here we see that the Lord brings about in His voice salvation. It's powerful to save. Not only was His voice powerful in creation, but His voice is powerful in salvation. So many of us have experienced the power of God's voice in our saving act. Your hard heart was broken like the cedars in Lebanon. Your hard heart was melted like wax before the mercy of our great God. And it was the voice of His Spirit that spoke to you the words of life and brought you from death into eternal salvation. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks down the cedars of Lebanon 
And then we see that the voice of the Lord flashes like a flame of fire, fire and it dwells over the wilderness. Here, I believe we see the consummative judgment of God, the voice of the Lord in consummative judgment over the people. It's no mistake that he says the wilderness of Kadesh. That's where Moses sat and the people were led in judgment. Remember, they came to the boundaries of Canaan. And they sent in the 12 spies and 10 came back with a report that there are giants in the land. And two said, we should go ahead. God said he would give us this land as a gift to us because of Abraham's promise. His promise to Abraham. And the people listened to the voice of the 10 and rejected God and his messengers. And God sent them to wander in the wilderness. And here David says his voice lightnings, flashes like lightning. I don't know how many times... In my life, I, but many times I've watched. I come from flat country. You are we around here. I've lived here now a long time, but I grew up in a flat land. And when you get on the backside of a thunderstorm, it's moved past you, and you watch those flashes just continue, just bang, 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 bang. When you're in it, you don't really see them. You don't hear them. It just you just experience the flood of the rain and all that's going on. But when you're not getting rained on, you're standing looking at the back, you see these flashes are just continually happening. And the whole sky is illuminated. He says the voice of the Lord is like that in judgment. It's quick in judgment. It's sure in judgment. It's fierce in judgment. So the Lord's voice is shown here to be mighty. And it strips all things bare before it. And it brings us to a point of humility that we cry out, like those in heaven, glory. The only response that can be had by the people of God in the tabernacle, in the temple, is glory. God is glorious. They're flattened by His character, by His might and His majesty. In the last two verses, we see a lack of God's rule. Uh, I mean, excuse me, a look at, it, we look at God's rule and His judgment. Again, this idea of the fact that the Lord sits enthroned above the flood. Here is the only mention of the word flood, and this Hebrew word is used only in one other place, and it's Genesis chapter 6, where the flood narrative is given to us. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. He is perfect in His judgment. We've seen that He's deserving of the highest of praise and worship. His voice is majestic and powerful and brings about both creation, salvation, and then consummating judgment. And you need to understand, and I need to understand, He sits enthroned above all of it. He is the great judge of the earth. The Lord sits enthroned forever. May the Lord give strength. To his people. Now, also, we could see here that the Lord is giving peace to his people. And so we look at these last two verses and we see this idea of the judgment of God. Now, the flood, you may, you may say, you know, why is David, is David talking this way? In the Old Testament narratives, floods are always a sign of God's judgment. Floods are always a sign of God's judgment. And from the earliest days, water was seen to be chaotic in the creation. It's spoken of as chaotic, as unformed, as simply there, vague, void of any life. 
Then when the people became exceedingly sinful, God rained down the flood from both the ground, the springs in the ground, and the springs of the heavens. He rained down a flood that covered the whole earth. Why? Because He was washing it clean with His judgment. He was washing it clean. And David says, that's no mistake. That's the judgment of our God against wickedness, against wrath. And so this idea of water as a judgment against the chaos and the sinfulness of man is no mistake. And let me tell you, Peter takes that idea a step further and says, though he destroyed the world once with a flood of water, let me tell you, when he comes the second time, he will flood the earth. But this time it will not be water. It will be a fire. And he will burn away all the sinful dross of the world. He will leave no stone untouched. He will scorch the earth with his wrath of judgment because he rules forever. He rules and reigns forever. And so we see at the end of this psalm, the heavens have joined the earth and the earth has joined the heaven in worshiping God. Verses 1 through 2 say, glory to God in the highest. And verse 11 we might say says, and peace on earth toward God's people. Same thing that the angels said in the, in, the, in the birth narrative of Christ, isn't it? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards those who belong to God. So here in Psalm 29, we see that same statement. We could end here. I want to make one application. One application of this text into our lives. I have a concern in my own heart, in my own mind, and I think probably is a concern that you have in your life, if you're honest. I don't worship God this way. Not the way I should. I'm suspicious that we, as a people, take God very lightly. And it comes out in our lives. Now, now, now's this, you thought, man, Carlton, this has been a great message. You haven't stepped on us once. Well, get ready. This is the stepping part. If God is worthy to be worshipped, and David calls all of heaven to worship, it implies that we should be worshipping Him. And my fear in my life and my concern for you I want you to be honest before the Lord with yourself before the Lord is that we worship, I worship all manner of things with my heart, not God. Our hearts are idols, factories. That's what Calvin called them. Our hearts are idol factories. What did he mean? He meant that because we're created to worship. We're created to worship like David has just described. When we refuse to worship God and ascribe to Him the glory due His name, we will worship something. Nobody in this world, atheist, agnostic, humanist, secularist, religious folk, Nobody in this world, spiritualist, nobody in this world worships nothing. Everybody worships. 
And what we see in Psalm 29 is the ultimate worship belongs to God. All worship belongs to God. He rules and reigns above it all. But my fear for myself and for you, if we're just honest, and why we chose to do radical together in home group, you might think you got your book, maybe your leader gave you your book already. You thumped in like, good grief, why are we doing this to ourselves? What are we thinking? This book challenges everything we do, everything we believe, everything we say, everything we give time and energy and money to. It challenges it all. It's intentional because there's this concern for myself and for us as a church that we're satisfied worshiping anything and not the one thing that is above all things. What, what might you be worshiping? I'll pick on the ones that's easy for me to worship. None of, the, none of this is necessarily bad. See, idols aren't always bad. They're good things that are warped into ultimate things. Since it's the fall of the year. In Alabama. Our hearts are given to worship. Last two weekends on Saturdays, I've gone to ball games. I just, just be honest. My heart, when I went in, both games, it's tuned up, cranked up. I'm happy. I'm joyful. I'm excited. I'm intent. I'm watching. I'm cheering. I'm giving myself there. And when I compare that to what I do with the living God, I think something's wrong with me. I give myself more fully to three and a half, four hours of sport than I do to worship of the living God. Is football a bad thing? By all means, I hope not. Right? But is it a thing that can grab a hold of a southern heart and say, look at me. Give time to me. Give energy to me. Give money to me. Give allegiance to me. Work. Is work an idol? For some of you, it is. Because you would give everything you had to get that next promotion or that next pay raise or meet that status for a bonus. And you'll do it with, the, with all the holy words of, I'm taking care of my family. But in reality, you're worshiping. Education. Because we all know all we need to do to get right in the world is get smarter. That fixes everything. I haven't named a bad thing yet, have I? But if you put them in the place of ultimate and you ascribe to football the glory do its name and you ascribe to work the glory do its name and you look at education as the key of power and majesty in your life, it's sinful idolatry. Sex. Why is it that our country is overrun I had a reaction to this also. 
I didn't see it. I was blessed not to see it. But I've heard a lot about it, and I've read about it, and I've thought about how awful it is that in our nation now, in primetime television, we can do all manner of ungodliness on a stage and call it a performance at an award show. And we get caught up talking about the performer, myself included. How awful it is that she would act that way. How terrible for her. Listen, they put it on your TV set because you will watch it. And they know you will. They're not in the business of putting wasted space on the TV. They sell advertisements because it makes money. Millions and millions and millions. Let me correct that. Over billions of dollars are spent in this nation on the sex industry. Why? Because it's a thing that's not bad in itself that when warped and made ultimate will draw your heart to worship it. Food. Both ways. Gluttony and the fit industry. Both are making millions in this country right now. Because what we're selling is, you can't be skinny enough, so just eat what you want. Live and let live. You'll never have that size and hourglass figure you want, so just love life. Eat it. And then another set that says, I can get that body. And I'm going to have it at all costs. Good things warped into ultimate things become idols. Family. You want me to keep going? Do I need to? Did you see what happens when we don't have the mindset of David in worshiping the Almighty? We worship something, and your God is what you will worship, and it's what's got to get you through eternity. So my question, my application is, what is your God, and will it carry you through eternity? If not, you need to change the course today. Because when verse 11 and 12 become true and the one who reigns over all things comes, his fire of judgment will rain down on all idolaters and none of them will inherit the kingdom. So David sat in awe of this God and worshipped him in the splendor of his majesty. That was his ultimate. What is your ultimate? What are you worshipping? What are you giving yourself to? What are you exempting yourself from? Some of us wouldn't dare miss a trip to the lake, a vacation with our friends and family, or a ball game on a Saturday. But we wake up with the mindset, do I feel like going to church today or not? Church is that thing we do to check off the list rather than the place we come to be with the people of God to worship and ascribe to Him glory. Oh, people, listen. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're okay. Do real work in your heart with God today. Is He a sideline to your idol, whatever it might be? Or is He the one you worship and swear allegiance to? There's hope. You're still breathing. You're still thinking. Your heart's still beating. Call on Him today. 
come to Him today with humble heart and broken heart of repentance and He will have you. And He will consume you. And then go to home group. Then go to home group and sit around and talk about how is it that we marshal everything in our life so that it speaks to the worthiness of God and the power and the majesty of God.